Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder, um, and it's good that you are here with us today. Uh, If it's your first day, you won't have heard this before, but I may have mentioned to the rest once or twice or maybe ten times that this year in my New Testament reading, I am going through the ESV Study Bible, the English Standard Version uh, Study Bible. And so what I do is to read the introduction to the book whenever I'm, 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 I'm coming to a book, and then I read the text and the notes along with the book. And I I'm honestly, I'm surprised at how much I'm remembering, how I'm processing things differently because of this time, and even how much I'm learning. (laughs) I'm never ashamed to learn Scripture. Sometimes I think, oh, I should have known that already. (laughs) But I'm never, I love learning about God as He tells us who He is in His Word. Uh, In our series on outreach, titled Engage the World uh, with the Gospel. I'm sure you're aware that I've been jumping around at different places in the New Testament rather than going straight through a book. Uh, But there's so much to say about outreach and evangelism in in the New Testament. Uh, And so, um, today we, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians. Today's message is a challenge to know how to share this unchanging gospel in whatever context you find yourself, with religious people, non-religious people alike. And that covers just about everybody. It's not that the Apostle Paul gives specifics in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23 about what he's saying we should be, exactly how we should be in our, uh, our relations with others, but he offers general principles for how to engage unbelievers. And we can get a sense not just from this text, we can get a sense of what both what he is saying and what he is not saying as we look at the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we're not going to obviously take time to look at all of 1 Corinthians this day, but I'll be going there a lot more than I typically would. One of the reasons is just because I want you to see how any particular text that you come to works when you look at the broader context. It's been my practice this year as I've find myself in different books, Galatians, Philippians, uh, well, I don't believe Philippians, but Colossians, Ephesians, 2 Corinthians, uh, Gospel of John, now 1 Corinthians. It's been my practice to read at least up to the place where the text is and sometimes to go all the way through. I've, I've read all the way through 1 Corinthians this week and I discovered the same thing that I do every single time this happens. The sermon is going to be different because I've read all the way through the the book than it would have been if I had just come to the text and and maybe expanded the context a little bit. Do you know the three most important principles of Bible interpretation? Context, 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 just like real estate. Context is crucial. That gives you an idea, and especially in a book. Look, when... When, when scholars are, are studying Paul's letters, they, they, and, and they come across a word, they say, 
They, they want to find out how does he use this word whenever he writes. But specifically, how does he use this word or how does he use this phrase or what's the argument he's making in the book, in this particular letter that he has written to a church? How is he using it? And that gives you a, a great deal of insight and understanding about the particular text that you are engaging. So we're going to see how that works this morning as we examine the text and then expand to all of 1 Corinthians. So here's the way we'll do it. First, we'll read the text. Then, and this text, by the way, will be familiar to many of you, if not most of you. Uh, then I'm going to spend time exegeting the text. What is he saying specifically? And then we'll try to understand what the Apostle Paul is getting at by expanding our uh, investigation to all of 1 Corinthians. And by that point, we will have our marching orders uh, by way of the example that the Apostle Paul lays out for us. So, as is our custom, I'll ask you to stand as we read our text this morning. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. For though I, the Apostle Paul, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and its blessings. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we <clears throat> read this, through this text, we, <clears throat> we know exactly what he means, and we don't have any idea what he means, all at the same time. Lord, uh, <clears throat> your word is <laughs> so compelling, so fresh, all the time. And I pray that you would draw our hearts to learn from you this morning. What a beautiful thing that you've done to not leave us wondering who you are or what you are. There's a mystery to be sure and, and, and there's a lot we'll never understand. <clears throat> but there's much we can know as you have revealed yourself. And now as we <clears throat> consider how Paul engaged the world with the gospel, we pray that our hearts would be instructed and challenged, encouraged. Lord, all of these things we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. <clears throat> I did a wedding one time and they were, we were well into the sermon part of the wedding before people, I remembered I was supposed to tell people to be seated. Someone was starting, they had gone to the front, and it was like dominoes, you know, going that way. said, you can be seated. So is this a familiar <clears throat> passage to you? I imagine most believers have heard somewhere along the way, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
Let's get this out of the way right up front. What does it mean by that I might save some? Five times already in this text, Paul has said, I've done this so that I might win some. I might win some. I might win some. Back when I was a lot younger, we used to hear about soul winning. You'd go out, win souls for Jesus. It's a very biblical concept. We're always concerned that the emphasis becomes too much on us and not on the Lord when we say things like that. But it's what Paul used. And now Paul goes and says, I might, I'm doing all this so that I might save some. What in the world? I mean, we would never say that, right? We would never say, <clears throat> well, I just want to save souls for Jesus. Because it would put the emphasis on us. Here's the deal. As, far, as best as I can figure, and I had a lot of help with this from commentary, so this is not just my thinking, but Paul is, is, is indicating what's at stake when he says this. Why do I do all of these things? And all of these things that Paul did cost him dearly. Why does he do this? Because the very salvation of souls is at stake. And if he believes what he says he believes about eternity, and we're going one way or the other, and there's a lot at stake, he does everything, he says, so that he might win some. In verse 19, Paul begins by stating that he is free from all. In the verses just before this, uh, Paul is pointing to his refusal to take money from the Corinthians because... And he did it in other places. Some places he allowed people to support him. In Corinth, he made tents. He said, I'm not taking any money from you. Why was that? Well, because at Corinth, especially his authority as an apostle was challenged. People said, who are you? Look, Apollos is a lot better speaker than you. Peter's the man who was given the keys of the kingdom. And some were so spiritual, they said, I don't follow those guys. I follow Jesus. I follow Christ. And Paul <clears throat> took him to task for that, saying, who are any of these people? Where, Jesus, of course, is the one, but the people who were saying, I follow Christ, were, it, was a, it was an arrogant kind of thing that they were saying. And, and Paul was saying, I didn't take any money from you because then you would have said, yeah, he's, he's not such a big deal. If it weren't for us, he wouldn't be able to do anything. So he said, I'm free from that. <clears throat> I don't take money from, from you. So, because as we've said lots of times, when, when Paul's authority as an apostle was in question, the very truth of the gospel, the very gospel itself was in question. So Paul didn't want anything that would bring disrepute on the Lord's word and on the gospel. So he says, I'm free from that. But he also is saying, I'm free from the Mosaic law, the ceremonial regulations of the Mosaic law. <clears throat> Even so, he became a servant to all. Now, a lot of people, when they read this text, they're like, okay, hey, this, I can be this way here, this way here. But it really becomes more about us than about others or about the Lord. And Paul said, I, I, I'm, I'm free from all people's... And at the same time, though, I am servant to everyone. He became their servant so that he might gain a hearing, even though sharing the gospel earned him multiple beatings, ridicule, stoning, imprisonment. Paul suffered greatly because he humbled himself 
to share the gospel. Verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul was already a Jew, so what does it mean? I became a Jew. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul enjoyed the freedom that he had in Christ. And yet, he had a burning heart, as we've read earlier this year in Romans. He had a burning desire in his heart to see his Jewish brothers and sisters come to the Lord. And so, when he was with Jews, even though he was free in Christ, he was willing to live under the law's restrictive regulations so that perhaps Jews would listen to the gospel. He understood that most of them wouldn't trust Christ. But he wanted to gain a hearing from them. As you know, (laughs) religious people are not going to listen to those who are quite irreligious. A lot of people have... They, 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 they put on some sort of a, a persona, a, an affectation, so that they might find themselves able to witness to a particular group of people. And so often, what that does is not expand their ministry, it limits it. There are ways that we, we, we interact with people at all different levels that indicate how much we love them and care about them without being exactly like them. But Paul is in that direction. When I was a Jew, I observed all kinds of... Look, right before he left Corinth, he shaved his head because of a vow um, <clears throat> that, was, that was going on amongst Jewish people. And it's, it's some, some of that's hard to try to figure out uh, how Paul would be so critical of legalizers who tried to get Gentiles to be free... <clears throat> In Christ, and then he would turn right around and he would abide by certain Jewish regulations. It was all for the sake of the gospel. Whether we ever figure it out in this life, one thing we can know Paul did whatever he did for the sake of the gospel. He made it clear, though he lived at times according to the law, he was not bound by the law. In verse 21, Paul shares a model for ministry with more secular minded men and women, when he writes that he lives in a way with them to gain a hearing, just, as, just in the same way he lives with very religious people to get a hearing. To say that he was nonetheless under the law of Christ indicates that, that Paul didn't abandon morality and, the, and, 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 and God's ways of lifestyle that's expected for Christians when he engaged those outside the law. In fact, the law of Christ is tougher than the law of Moses because he talks about our motives. Not only can you not kill somebody, you can't hate them. How tough is that? Life's hard. There are people worth hating in this life, right? Well, we don't get to if we're under the law of Christ. Not only can we not commit adultery, we can't lust. We can't entertain it in our hearts. This is what the law of Christ requires. So Paul is not saying I've abandoned morality. And in fact, the frequent rebukes he issued to the Corinthians because of their worldliness tells us Paul sought to live a holy life. But it's also pretty clear that that people who didn't live a moral life, those who were immoral, were comfortable 
in Paul's presence. And they allowed him to share the gospel. That's when he often got in trouble when he shared the gospel. Verse 22 uh, is a bit tricky. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. One of the controversial issues in Corinth was the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. So there are two things going on here. One is that there were, in that day, there were, there were these big temples to, to the idols that people worshipped. And beside that was connected a banquet hall. And so you might have a civic affair or a family reunion or whatever in this banquet hall. And they would bring meat that had been offered to idols into the banquet hall. They would serve it there. And people were saying, should we do that or not? Paul said, nope, don't do it. Don't do it because you're connected to that temple. And that meat that has been offered to idols makes you a participant with that idol. It's like you, you join yourself to that idol. Then he also, in the next chapter, talks about how that this table, when we eat at the Lord's table, we are joined, we are connected with Jesus in a very special way. So we say, and avoid the banquet halls connected to the temples where idols are worshipped. But, lots of times, people would offer, those, offer that meat to the idols, and then they would take it and sell it at the market at reduced rates. You know, it's like, it's, already, it's like the little package. Sell by, oh, that's today, you know. I can get a good price on this if I'm willing to take a chance. Well, it wasn't so much that the meat was going bad. It's just that it had been offered to an idol, so it was sold at a, a cheaper price. What about that? Should you eat that? Paul said, yeah, fine. It's, what is it? It's meat. I'm not worried about that. If you go to the temple and you partake there, you're participating with the idol. But if it's removed from that, you come away... And you can't, <clears throat> and, and people sell it there, yeah, get a good deal on it. Because what is an idol? It's nothing. It really doesn't exist. So eat it with, in good conscience unless it offends your brother or sister. If someone comes along and says, I just don't think I can do that. I don't think in good conscience I could eat this meat that has been offered to idols. Then Paul said, look, I, if that's the case, I will never again eat meat in my life if it offends my brother. So his point is, don't offend the weaker one. Now what's really tricky about this verse is, he's saying he might win the weak. Every case that we know of in scripture when it talks about the weak brother is talking about a believer. Here it's kind of, we're not as sure about that. Either way. Whether it's a brother, sister, or not, be gentle in your... Look, I came out of legalistic background. A lot of us are recovering legalists here at Grace. And we want to tend to be pretty rough on our past. Paul says, be gentle with your weaker legalistic brothers. Be gentle. And then in verse 23, Paul says he does all things for the sake of the gospel. And the gospel builds individual into, individuals into this beautiful corporate body. Not an organization, but an organism. It's the body of Christ. And he binds us all together in the Lord for all eternity. 
Okay, he doesn't say all of that in verse 23, but he does in the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. That's the point. In view of the entire letter, we're going to take some time now to think about Paul, what Paul is saying and what he is not saying when he affirms his commitment to become all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. Let's think, first of all, what Paul is not saying about his efforts to witness to as many people as possible with the full expectation that some will be saved. First, he is not saying that the goal is to get along. In other words, to compromise the gospel to bring more people into the church. Uh, if you read 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 to 25, you'll see he's talking about the people that actually come to the Lord and often it's not exactly who you would think. If you were to happen upon our text, 1 Corinthians 9, um, 19 to 23, without understanding the bigger picture, and Paul says, I've become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. You might be thinking, my goodness, this apostle Paul will say anything to get people to believe whatever it is he's selling or to buy whatever it is he's selling. He'll do anything. If you read, have read carefully to this point, though, in 1 Corinthians, you realize that Paul is anything but pliable when it comes to the gospel message. He recognized the idea that a crucified Savior is utter ridiculousness to Greeks, to philosophers, to, to the educated. And then it's, it's, utter, it's a stumbling block, an, an absolute uh, uh, massive stumbling block for Jews to think who, who had thought that the, the Messiah would be a, a military deliverer and now he's hanging on a Roman cross. You're kidding me. The point of becoming all things to all people is not to adjust the gospel so that it's palatable to them. Paul preached that our sin problem is so great that someone had to live a perfect life and then become a perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus, the God-man, was the only eligible substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this sense, Christianity is 100% inclusive. Anyone can come. All are invited to believe in Jesus, repent of their sins, and, and believe in Jesus. So it's very inclusive. And yet, we preach, we proclaim an exclusive message. Only those who believe will be saved. You ever thought, you know, I would love to invite my friend to church, but I just think he would feel so judged, and I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. You know what? I hear your heart, and I appreciate your concern for your friend. I think we all have to recognize, though, the truth of the gospel is never going to change. It's never going to change. Sooner or later, every single person who has ever lived, we believe this is what the Bible teaches. If we believe this, we believe it all the way. Sooner or later, all will be confronted with the weight of their sin. And by the way, it's not just particular activities that causes us to be separated from God for all eternity. It's the sin of our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. Adam, to be specific. 
Even though Eve was first, the sin is laid on Adam. And it's passed down to all of us. And if you're the greatest person who ever lived, you've got a sin problem. And we will all understand one day just how heavy that weight, the weight of our sin is. If you bring someone to church who disagrees with the message, my desire would be that she would say, I, I don't get it. I, I certainly don't believe that. And in fact, I, my understanding is that people that believe that way are just, just cruel and wicked. And people are genuinely friendly and they're caring, even though they know how I believe. They know how I, that's my desire. It's, a, it's just that people will understand we love them. And we don't think we're any better than anybody else. We're all sinners. All things to all people is not about having others like what you have to say. It's about others being willing to listen to the gospel. So the second thing Paul was not saying in this text is that we should depend on our knowledge and personality to persuade people to believe. In the last half of the 20th century, there, there have been a lot of different models that were used to present the gospel uh, to those who don't know Jesus. If you've done much witness, and I'm sure you've used maybe one of these models or, or sort of a, a combination of the Roman road, evangelism explosion, uh, four spiritual laws, something similar. Today's evangelism models tend to be a lot more in storyline form. And I really like that, going through Scripture so that the Old Testament means something. It's not just sort of there. It's in the past. But God was doing something all along. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You see that cycle, God's cycle over and over in Scripture. He creates and then man falls and, and re we're redeemed through Christ. And one day this whole creation is going to be restored to what it was. That's what Scripture's telling That's the story it's telling us. And then we see it in our own lives. We're... <clears throat> We're born, and then we realize we're sinners, and then Jesus saves us, and it's like he's doing a new thing in our life. We're restored to what we're supposed to be, and, and then we just blow it, and we've fallen, or some catastrophe happens. But then the Lord redeems that situation, and we find ourselves restored, and it's like he's doing a new thing, and then it starts all over again. <laughs> I far prefer those kinds of models. And even though I'm not focusing on any of those in the Sunday morning sessions, on August 30th, which is our next Grace Matters, we're going to have a panel to talk about that. And I'm going to say a lot about this between now and then. I want to encourage as many people as possible to come on that night. where We'll just talk about different ways to share Christ when you get down to brass tacks. What is it you're going to say? How are you going to say it? So put that on your calendar and we'll come back to it soon. So, models and methods give us structure for our presentation of the gospel. But if the Holy Spirit is not working, there will be no decision for Christ. Let me rephrase that. No matter how good we are at sharing Christ and the gospel with others, if the Holy Spirit is not working, there will be no lasting decision. For Christ. So much more that could be said about that. But let's just finish this thought. Thinking about the words that the Apostle Paul. Used to tell his readers. 
to remind them about his first encounter with them. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. <laughs> and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being like this? And they would have said, yep, I remember that. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul is saying, look, when you're sharing Christ, when you become all things to all people, this, it's, it's not so that with your clever thoughts and phrasing and and leading somebody down, to a, to, down the road to a gotcha moment. Look, the Spirit of God. This is about the Spirit of God working in people's lives. We've said it, seen it over and over. He doesn't do it without us. Somehow in God's amazing plan, we get to be part of this process. <clears throat> but He doesn't do it because of us. He does it by the Spirit of God. So, one more thing we need to see that Paul was not saying. And that is that all will be okay in the end. I have become all things to all people so that they will be saved. But that's not what he said. Perhaps the most difficult thing you will say to unbelievers is that unless you repent and believe that Jesus died for your sin, you will spend eternity under condemnation. In fact, you're already under condemnation according to John 3. And apart from Christ, you will spend eternity that way, separated from the blessings of God that are readily available to all who believe. In the great chapter on the resurrection, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it clear that the ones who are resurrected to eternal life are those who belong to Jesus. Paul did not become all things to all people so that all would think him cool. Hey, Paul's a cool dude. Man, I really, really like what he has to say. Or, nor to tell others that God is cool with you no matter your state in life. We have... This most wonderful message in the world and the most difficult message in the world. Most people in our, our land don't believe there will be consequences in the next life. If they believe in the next life, and probably at some level most do or they're suspicious that there is something more to all of this existence than what we have here on earth. But most wouldn't say, I, I believe that, that, that I'm going to suffer for what I've done in the next life. Not like it was, look, in, in the 80s and 90s, you remember, man, we were just eaten up with guilt. Not many people are eaten up with guilt, especially young people. Just don't struggle with guilt at the same levels because society has said for so long, whoever you are, whatever, you be everything that you're supposed to be. Just be who you are. And in fact, people are told, the great sin in life is to restrict your own happiness. If you're in a bad marriage, 
get out. It's a sin to stay in that marriage. Because you need to be what God has designed for you to be. We don't think about bad things in the next level. If you took a poll of Americans and you asked, do you think everyone will enjoy good things in the next life? I'm, I'm certain the majority would say, yes, I do. So, as a believer, why risk the anger of others by saying that their eternal status depends on what they do with Jesus? Why would you do that? Because our hearts have been stirred like Paul's. And we say along with him in 1 Corinthians 9.16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not. Preach the gospel. Paul varied the methods that he used in presenting the gospel according to the people with whom he was witnessing or to whom he was witnessing so that they would hear the gospel. So we've thought about Paul, what Paul was not saying in our text. And so now it's time to consider what he was saying about sharing the gospel with the lost. First... God meets people where they are. The gospel's implications are broad enough that you can enter the conversation anywhere. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. It doesn't matter if it's Jew, Gentile, religious, non-religious, moral person, reprobate. It doesn't matter. We all have the same physiological and psychological needs. And look into it, in addition to our basic physiological needs of food and, and shelter, clothing. We all want to be loved. We all desire purpose. We all need hope. Everybody's the same way in that sense. That those needs are not based on racial, socioeconomic, political factors. We all need love. And if you're devoid of those needs, most likely something happened to you somewhere in your life, probably when you were young. It just messed things up in your heart, in your mind, and you're just getting along dealing with it as best you can. But all of us at the deepest level need love. And when it's presented, it's the best news ever. And sometimes it's, it seems ridiculous to those who hear it. No matter where you are in life, good news, God meets you where you are. You're not required to advance to another level morally, intellectually, socially to be saved. A theology of glory says, climb up to God. We're climbing Jacob's ladder. Little kids sing in Sunday schools everywhere. That's not a good idea. You're just not going to make it to God. Theology of the cross says that he came down to us because we were incapable of getting to him. And he meets us at the cross where the ground is level. That's why Paul desired to become all things to all people. Because we're all in the same boat and everyone needs good news. At the end of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul reminds the church members at Corinth that, that God delights in using people that most would think unusable to accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, he's talking about God is use, use, uses the weak things, the... Uh, uh, 
of foolish things in the eyes of the world to confound the strong and the wise. And he, he's alluding to Jeremiah chapter 9 where the Lord warned the wise not to, 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 to trust in their wisdom nor the, the wealthy in their riches nor the, the mighty in their position. Why not? Because all of those things are gone in a second. And because all of those things, once we start living in that sense that we're trusting those things, put the focus on us and not on God. I think deep down we all know that whatever we have in this world, this life can go away in a moment. And you may not think that you're wealthy enough or smart enough or clever enough to witness to someone that God has put in your path. Well, that person's way beyond me. I can't witness to that person. You have something the unbeliever doesn't have. Assurance that all is going to be okay one day. At the resurrection, you belong to Jesus. And if the Spirit of God dwells in you, it will become plain to those that you encounter. Some will be really grateful for the Spirit of God dwells in you. Some will not be grateful at all. Because you have what they have, they don't have. Or because your message challenges their beliefs and their actions. Don't weaken your testimony by watering down the gospel. The gospel never changes. Another point Paul was making to believers was. Our desire is not to be accepted by the world. The salvation of some is our purpose for evangelism. Look, I've seen, I know a lot of you have seen Schindler's List. and there's, there's some scenes in that movie I would not recommend. I may get in trouble with some parents today, but if you've seen it, maybe an edited version. You, you know Schindler's List. At the end of, that, end of that movie, Oscar Schindler, who saved some 1,200 Jews um, by employing them in his factory, was just weeping because the people that he couldn't save. And everybody walked up to him and said, I'm so disappointed in you, Oscar. And you could have saved so... No, nobody said that. They were saying, thank you. Thank you for what you did. Some were saved. We're, we're all here. We're testimonies. Look, later in life, he had a lot of failed business ventures and he pretty much lived on the donations of those that he had saved during the Holocaust. That's what Paul was doing. He was saying, I, I will do anything I can to save some. I know that everybody's not going to make it. I know that. Not everyone is going to believe, but some will. He knew better than to think he could save people. But he used the word to show what was at stake. And what was at stake was far more than what was at stake in World War II. As a follower of Christ, we're called to a holy lifestyle. Not one that will likely appeal to the world. Our message is not appealing to the world. Less so every day. Even so, your loving care for those who don't know Christ is far more likely to yield fruit than any attempt to seek the world's favor by agreeing with them that everybody is okay and we're all just trying to figure this out as best we can. 
It's true that God, God loves people right where they are. It is not true that God accepts people where they are. He accepts none of us unless we repent and believe that Jesus died for our sins. And repentance indicates a turning from sin. Not that we're going to be perfect. My goodness, every one of us, it, 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 probably this past week, are thinking, really? You're a Christian and you, it's the way you think, it's the way you act, it's the way you do. We're going to struggle with it till the day we die, but acknowledging that we are the sinners that God says we are means that there's the possibility that something will be done about our sin as we go. No matter how many clever arguments, beautiful artistic portrayals we can produce, God's word and the gospel never change, and they are the power of God to salvation. Paul didn't seek to win the approval of others. He sought the salvation of some. And so what did he tell those who would listen? It's our last point. Hope is in the resurrection of the body. Nothing in this world, good or bad, compares. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a concise definition of the gospel. One of the first things you notice is that it's rooted in history. This is what he said in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus lived a life, a perfect life. He died for our sins. He was buried. And according to the scriptures, he rose from the dead. Did you notice this morning when we recited the Apostles' Creed that we were reciting history? Look at our... Um, our statement of faith is it's, it's a whole lot about what we believe happened in the past. We believe that this message that we share is rooted in history. It's not just some sort of ethereal spiritual thing that if you'll just believe, you know, if you'll just have faith in faith itself, everything will be okay. I hear people all the time saying, I have my faith. Faith is a gift from God. Unless it's his gift to us, it's misplaced. Our faith is really not the faith that will save us. The reason that the Apostles' Creed was first developed was to clarify the church's understanding about the life and purpose of Jesus. A lot of heretical ideas were starting to come into play and they were saying, because you can take any verse of, not any verse, but you can take a lot of verses of scripture like to say that Christ was the firstborn among the brethren. What does that mean? Does that mean that he was created? No, it doesn't. It means he had a, a position that was first in the church. So, but, but there was misunderstanding. And so people said, okay, this is our statement of faith. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, all we're doing is it's the same thing as reciting our, our statement of faith. I know that it's been misused by a lot of people who think that in saying it, then that's the deal. But... There's nothing wrong with it. It's the wrong with the way some people, uh, some people practice it. Look, without a clear explanation of what we believe, we really have nothing to offer. That's why we quote the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed from time to time. 
The hope that is ours to offer others in the gospel is not that this life will be perfect or even better, but because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have the hope that one day our bodies will be resurrected and we will live eternity, eternally worshiping our Creator and Savior, Jesus. So in a day when scientists are with a straight face talking about immortality in these bodies, and there's so much more of that talk than you know if you've not heard about it, that we are God's homo deus, same as God's. We're God's. That's what we're, we're, we're seeking to achieve divinity, as ridiculous as that sounds. Think about it. In a day where such talk is this, as this, is becoming more and more widespread in an expectation. The gospel tells us what we already know. This world is broken beyond repair. And our only hope is in the resurrection. And what a hope it is. When I read 1 Corinthians 15 this week, and I saw the benefits of the resurrection in my increasingly weary and out of shape body, man, I was excited. So we're going to close with the promise of the resurrection made to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That's a good word. To believe and to offer to others. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word that is so powerful and speaks so directly to us will find hearts that are prepared to receive it. Lord, we pray that as we take this word to others, recognizing that not everybody is going to believe, and in fact, the majority may not believe, and it may cost us greatly to share this news. May we remember that some will believe. And may that inspire us and encourage us. Lord, help us to Follow Paul's example. Becoming all things to all people that by all means some might be saved. Through the power of the life-changing word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Receive this benediction from First Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org.